0: when we became thinking uh, creatures, we decided to interpret the world uh, by creating a mythology of gods and monsters. You know, we created angels, we created demons, we created uh, serpents devouring the moon. We created a mythology to, to make sense of the world around us. And monsters were born at the same time than angels or any of the beatific uh, uh, creatures and characters were created. So. I don't assign them a specific value, uh, but I do, I am very mindful of the way I deal with them in the movies uh, and in the books because uh, I assign them a, a specific function and I try to take them to the extreme with that. You know, I make them victims or I make them sympathetic or I make them brutal parasites and they become a metaphor for something else. Obviously, monsters are living, breathing metaphors, that, for me, half of the fun is explaining them so- socially, biologically, mythologically, and so forth. Drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater. That's why, to familiarize you with the movie rating symbols, which will be used by this theater, we present the following guide for parents and young people. X, no one under 17 admitted.
1: Do you have a rash of stabbings of adopted parents up in Canada?
2: No. We do, apparently, according to the Facebook group for My Neighborhood, apparently there is somebody who has snuck up to houses and carved the pumpkins that they left out on their front steps, (laughs) which is pretty great
1: is that canadian vandalism up there
2: i guess it counts
3: it'd be even funnier if they did a very good job
2: yeah that's what i was upset when i saw the post there was no uh, pictures, pictures i'm like well come on
1: <laughs> it's just like oh that people didn't carve their pumpkins i'll show them
2: it's very nicely
1: carved with a candle inside
2: i, I definitely uh I definitely got a pumpkin and put it on my front porch, kind of secretly hoping someone sneaks up and carbs it while I'm not home.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. Does all the hard work
2: for you. Yeah. Oh, I, the hard work for me is getting the pumpkin because it takes an entire day and you have to spend four hours in a corn maze, but that's just because I have kids.
1: So. <laughs> kids buy them at the store
2: you can hypothetically but I took my kid to a pumpkin patch once when he was like three and now it's an annual tradition
1: oh okay fair enough so I was gonna ask if you had any Halloween traditions
2: I don't that's about just which, which is a bummer I usually watch trick-or-treat after all the everyone's gone to bed so that's yeah. about closest to a tradition I have for Halloween
1: my tradition was celebrating my wedding anniversary,
2: but Yeah.
1: That's not a problem anymore.
2: If it makes you feel any better, um, I have my son for Halloween and now he wants to trick or treat with his little sister, which means I might get to go over to my ex's house <laughs> and walk around with her. That'll be fun.
1: Ooh. Yeah, fun that time. sounds miserable. She had another kid? Yeah. Some new information finding
2: out. Oh, uh, you didn't know that?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't. I don't really update you that much. She's getting married too. If that makes you feel better. Oh wow! She'll be married by the time this is released.
1: Really? She's getting married soonish, huh?
2: Yeah. Huh? She, this week.
1: Is she a big Halloween fan? Because tell her it's not a good idea to ruin your favorite holiday by getting married.
2: Oh, she's terrible at Halloween. Oh
1: well, good then.
3: <sighs> at least she didn't try to steal my great uh anniversary date. Ten ten. Ten is such a great <laughs> I can't That's- ever forget.
2: Just easy to remember.
3: Yeah. Dude, we got married ten ten twenty twenty. I can't ever fuck it up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well have a little faith in yourself. You'll fuck it up eventually. Well that was
1: <laughs> a thought when I got married on Halloween. Well the best thing is people are like
3: mistake. you know, how many years have you been married? And I'm like, easy math. <laughs> Three
2: yeah three that's the first 10 years will be real easy after that it gets complicated but anyways this is depressing talk <laughs> i don't know why we're doing this to our if system. it makes do you, it, do it do it do make it you
3: guys feel better i I did a uh, murder mystery dinner over the weekend Oh that's right like yeah. i hosted it
2: it
1: was delightful mm. it went very well
2: but it's delightful
1: do people figure out the uh Who the killer was?
3: Uh, Yeah, so I think four people figured out who the murderer was, and one person did a really bang-up job, like, because you have to write out your justification for it, Mm -hmm. and they pretty much got every single piece of evidence that you could have figured out for it, but not a single person figured out the motive, which was kind of interesting.
2: Mm. That means technically your dinner was a failure you should have given them just enough information that they could figure it out.
3: Well, I didn't write it, so it wasn't my fault. Right. I just hosted it. It wore my sweet train conductor outfit. Yeah. I saw <laughs> your wife post it on Facebook. Yeah. I saw that picture. I was like, man, I, I, my costume actually looked pretty good.
1: And I was like, why am I not an old-timey train conductor?
2: Yeah, maybe I need a, <laughs> time for a career, a career change time. Yeah. <laughs> It's time for a career change. I'm becoming a conductor from 100 years ago. It was
3: it was such a success, and everybody had such a good time. We're already starting to plan the next one. We're thinking about doing a Christmas-themed one in
1: December. Oh, I was going to become one of these people that does one like every month. Yeah, I, it's too much work to do it every month. Yeah. So you're like, oh, I've got a perfect one for Thanksgiving.
3: <laughs> it's turkey time, bitches. Which we really haven't talked about it.
1: Does uh, anybody else enjoy the new uh, Thanksgiving trailer from Eli Roth?
3: I haven't actually watched the trailer for it yet. Yeah, me neither. I'm All not right. a gigantic Eli Roth fan.
2: I hate
1: Eli Roth. got yeah, I, I got. Well, I got, want every trailer from Grindhouse to become its own movie, just to fulfill the prophecy. So it's happening.
3: Yeah, it's just weird. His his fucking early career. I was so like, oh yeah, I see this this dude's gonna be this cool. Like genre guy. And, but then you get into it and you're like, ah, how are you both just the sloppiest ass motherfucking filmmaker and a pretentious asshole at the same time?
2: <laughs> it, it is quite an accomplishment. Yeah.
1: I made the mistake of telling Chris Jericho that I hated Eli Roth when I met him. And he then informed me that was one of his really good friends in Hollywood. And I was like, oh, well, awesome.
3: Right. Well, sorry, so sorry about that, Chris Jericho. I'm also going to tell you that I'm not a huge fan of the Scorpions, and then he just fucking kicks you in the face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nah, he was in a very somber mood. It was the weekend after the Benoit murders happened. So. Oh Jesus! Yeah, wrong time, Brian. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I went to went to Horror Hound. He was at a horror convention it was the weekend after and i'm like oh fuck i can't believe he's still he didn't cancel his appearance but still showed up and even did an interview with me for a horror junk podcast i was doing at the time but yeah i just casually mentioned like oh all that garbage that Eli Roth does. like oh yeah he's, he's one of my good friends i'm like oh fuck
3: you, like, do, you know, know right, what the weird thing is i i feel like there would if eli roth was in the room his reaction would probably be like, "Yeah, yeah, I make shit." Yeah,
2: <laughs> I'm just I mean, looking at Eli Roth's filmography, and I'm not sure I hate him. No, no, I mean I hated Hostel.
3: Yeah, I don't hate. See, I don't hate all of his movies. I hate him personally,
1: as a personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Horrible. As as a person, right. very frat boy,
2: and I hate frat boys. Yeah, so. and his
3: and his movies are so fucking like. Hit or miss.
2: Hey, did you guys notice that one of the characters in the movies that we're supposed to be talking about actually looked like Eli Roth?
1: Um, sure.
2: <laughs> the, the the, villain in the Devil's Backbone. This is, I was thinking Eli Roth looking at him. He's got huh. the, the same haircut as from uh, Glorious Bastards, and he's kind of like built like him. Well,
1: why don't you explain to us what the devil's backbone's all about for those that may not know?
2: All right, so uh, let's see. It's the Spanish Civil War, which we are all experts on and we'll be able to discuss intelligently and rationally throughout the podcast. Of course. And uh, there are there's a, an orphanage set up for kids of parents who have died in the war, and they are kids specifically of the, the one side. Presumably the good side, because that's why we're concentrating on these kids. But I don't know which side they're on. Um,
1: I thought you meant the male side, and
2: I was like, what? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Anyways, no, they're uh, but so the they are also hiding like gold and providing support to one side of the war. Uh, I think the rebellious side, which Star Wars teaches me is the good guys. Um, and basically, when a new kid shows up. He is sort of being bullied a little bit. He finds himself alone in some creepy old parts of the building. Turns out there's a ghost. Big mystery about where the ghost came from, because it's a little ghost kid, which is sad. I don't know if we want to go full spoilers in our plot description, I guess, but it is a 2001 movie, so... Yeah, I think that's past. Yeah, it's eventually revealed that this evil janitor that looks an awful lot like Eli Roth ended up killing the kid years ago. And... The movie kind of comes to a climax where he is now trying to steal the gold that they're hiding there and run off. And he ends up blowing the place up, killing many of the adults. But the kids are like, fuck you. So they kill him right back and basically feed him to the ghost.
3: Fucking brutally, too. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Fucking jagged hand-carved spears. Jesus. Jesus.
2: We're going to talk about that, how that counts as a happy ending in this movie. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, they, they throw him in this large pool of water, which ties us back to our uh, discussion of William Castle films, where there's just these large open pools of things in the basement of buildings for reasons. Um, but luckily, then they, that's where they borrow the ending from Friday the 13th Part 7, and the ghost grabs him and pulls him down. Which, by the way, Friday 13 Part Seven took it from Monster Squad. So uh, that's that's the ending of the film, and then the the big joyous ending is that the old man that runs the orphanage becomes the new ghost to take over. Now that that ghost has been has had his life mission fulfilled, and the uh, the children wander off, presumably to die in a war, because they're just children wandering down a highway at the end of this movie in the middle of a war-torn country. <laughs> I
3: mean, and, and Guillermo del Toro is such a dick. He doesn't even, like, give them one bar of the gold or something falling out of the guy's pocket to give you some hope that they have, like, a way of surviving.
2: No, no, the final shot of this movie is a ghost watching children walk away, carrying all their earthly possessions. The closest thing to, like, happiness you get is that some of the really little kids are being carried by some of the bigger kids. That's, like, the closest thing to a nice ending this film gets. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that
3: one kid snapped his ankle, so he gets to hop around.
2: Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure why you think a kid snapping his ankle is a positive, but... It looks like he's skipping.
1: <laughs> so, Noah, from what I remember, this is the first time watch watched for you?
2: Yeah, yeah, this is one
3: of the ones I haven't oh, seen.
1: okay. What would you think?
3: I think it's a very much a Guillermo del Toro movie. <laughs> yep. It's it's one of, the, so there's like two types of Guillermo del Toro movies. There's his English speaking movies, which are almost exclusively uh, pop culture-y type movies, right? Adaptations of, of various things or reimaginings of various things. And then there's this Spanish language movies, which are dark fairy tales that have no discernible plot structure to them. It just kind of like meanders about and there's different things going on and then the movie ends
2: see I don't know if I agree with that assessment. Um, this movie and the other movie, I would say there are multiple plot threads going on at any given time. right, but, do, but I'm saying they, it's not like a all... three
3: part story arc. it's like a thirty five part
2: yeah, <laughs> but, <story arc. laughs> but they do all come together and make sense and all the plot threads interact at the end. It's not like it's a right. I'm not
3: I'm not saying it's bad storytelling. I'm saying it's non-traditional storytelling,
2: non-traditional. That's fair. Yeah, I just, yeah. just want to make it clear. It's not as if, you know, it's not as if there's two stories going on. And at the end of the movie, you're like, well, wait a minute. Those two characters never interacted. It's the story. Like in this case, it's the story of the mystery of where did the ghost come from? And it's also the story of what's going on in this orphanage and how that interacts with the Civil War. And then at the end, you see the climax where the two stories kind of come together through that janitor character. But we don't know that until late in the film because they do a really good job of setting up that other kid as the red herring. We think the other kid probably killed uh, Santee. Who's the ghost? That's who we assume killed him through most of the film. So yeah,
3: there's a bunch of there's a bunch of funkiness going on. So there's once again there's a ghost of a child bleeding from his head, uh, which is treated as if he's underwater because his body's underwater. So like the blood's constantly Mm -hmm. floating out into space, which is pretty dope.
2: That visual is just fucking amazing it's been ingrained in my brain since the first time i saw this film yeah and i can't like i i can just at any point in time at any day just close my eyes and picture that kid with the not just the blood flowing upwards but like the bubbles around him and shit too they get every little detail is just amazing and it looks so fucking cool
3: and there's an unexploded bomb in the middle of the plaza of this house for orphans Yeah. Uh, which may or may not be magical in some weird way. It seems to make random sounds. And, you know, there's just it, it very fairy telly stuff. And somehow, those two things are not super fucking plot relevant to this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. like, don't get me wrong. They're part of it. But you could take them out, and the story doesn't change a whole lot. Like,
2: <laughs> Well, the whole, like... The whole ghost thing, I think, what I love about it is that it is kind of like, first of all, we're, ter- we're as an audience, we're told very early on, like, there's a ghost kid there. You know what I mean? There's a kid there. He clearly died by getting his head bashed because that's where the bleeding is coming from. Mm-hmm. That's never in question in this movie, which I really like. I think it really helps concentrate on the other elements of the mystery of it. Um, and also, they, they do. They keep him in the background for much of the movie. He's not... It's not like the whole plot of the movie. It's not like everything the characters do surrounds that ghost. And I think it really it makes the ghost creepier because you're not seeing him a lot. It also when when the ghost sort of turns into the hero at the end of the movie, it doesn't feel like a cheesy plot twist because he hasn't been like jumping out and scaring people all the time throughout the whole movie. You know, so when he ends up helping take down the evil janitor guy, it's like, okay. That, that makes sense. He's getting his revenge. And that's kind of where that plot logically ends up. Right. Um, I, I think it's great. I, th- I think this movie, a lot of the movies from this era, I think, uh, think about like the sixth sense or a stir of echoes, these types of movies, the others, like they have like a real plot going on. And then the ghosts are part of it as opposed to being just the centerpiece. And I think it really helps add to the atmosphere and the creepiness and the rewatchability of the films because they remain interesting even after you know the plot twists. Uh, And this is just a a great example of that. They do... Mm -hmm. Del Toro nails it perfectly, I think, with the amount of time spent on supernatural stuff compared to the amount of time spent on just, like, the more traditional story.
1: Do you think that's probably, like, a cultural thing? Like, that culture is very much like, oh, yeah, there's ghosts. There's ghosts everywhere. There's ghosts and... Every house, like everybody, has a ghost. Ghosts are no big it's, deal. See, That's I why it's kind of in the background.
3: I don't know. See, I think it's just a Del Toro thing.
2: Yeah, well, because you have to, you do have the the teacher guy, the old, the older man. I don't know. He's supposed to be a teacher or the headmaster, or whatever he is. Um, um, you know, he very much is. You know, in, in, a, in a twist of irony, he's the one that doesn't really believe in ghosts. So they have that character there. I just think it's. When he says, you know, he's a man of science and he doesn't believe in all this superstition and all that, it just isn't a, a center, a centerpiece of the storytelling. But I think they're letting you know that not everyone believes well, in these ghosts. I,
3: I was going to say, see, but I think, I think that scene's supposed to actually unveil him as a hypocrite
2: because he drinks the, yeah,
3: because he drinks the stuff after the kid leaves, and then you find yeah. out later it's because he's impotent. So he's he's trying the magic cure that every you know that he's. Yeah, accusing the child of. Yeah, it's fascinating. I don't know. I I think it's watching these two together is really interesting because they have pretty similar, like not not just the fact that both of them are literally about the same war in the extent of, like fascism versus I don't know. I I'm assuming it was fascism versus some kind of communist scare is what was going on, they, but I'm not.
2: They, they do refer to them as Reds, right? So, Was that communism? I don't
3: maybe but it, but maybe that's just another like maybe reds are just revolutionaries or something maybe. but there there are these themes of the necessary destruction of innocence to like deal with this kind of stuff
2: yeah it's it's interesting that both the movies are i mean they're quite different but they both center around children and when you're making movies set in a war uh, and you choose choose to set it around the children, you're doing something inherently dark and something there where it's like, like, I, th- I think part of the message and part of the reason why the kids are shown just wandering off at the end of this is the idea that you, you, when you have this type of destruction, this, these types of civil wars or whatever, that you are inherently destroying the youth that grow up in that time. And that those kids will never be okay. I think is part of the message, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter that you set aside a special orphanage for them because someone might drop a bomb in the middle of it. And even if that bomb doesn't go off and the kids survive, are they really okay at the end of this movie? No, I don't think anyone would argue that they are. So I, I think that messaging is all there. It's all intentional, but it's also not pushed to the forefront. So you can kind of think about it if you want to or not think about it if you don't. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Guillermo, Guillermo Del Toro's, uh, not so subtle um, uh, imagery and and messaging. Sometimes it, I I don't know. I find it it works so well with the whole fairy tale esque style that he does mm-hmm. because you know there is the bomb in the middle of this orphanage is obviously like the looming threat. It's it's literally quote fingers like a ticking time bomb. You know what I mean? It's this yeah. this destructive thing that's just sitting there. And that's supposed to parallel uh what's the bad guy's name, Jun Juncito? Is that it?
2: Yeah. Something to that effect. The yeah. names are gonna be a problem in both these yeah, movies it, because they are like foreign language films.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah And so I was I was talking about like the destruction of innocence and the idea of like the the tolerance of this this is so hard to explain. The tolerance of evil. ...is what destroys everyone, right? Because everyone knows he's a piece of shit, and they've known he was a piece of shit since he was a child. And there's multiple instances where if somebody would have just fucking done something, none of this happens, right? And it it even happens multiple times during the movie, like, over and over and over. The guy almost shoots him at one point. Uh, The kid sees him murder the other kid and doesn't bother to fucking tell anybody like, all all that kind of shit. And I get cause it's because they're afraid of him or they don't want to be the bad guy and blah, 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 blah. But yeah. what we end up with is several dead kids. <laughs> and, you know, dead adults. The yeah. destruction of everything, you know.
2: Yeah, I think, but I think there's also messaging there. It's pointed out that he kind of grew up in that orphanage. And I think the idea that him growing up parentless with no family has turned him into this piece of shit and that now he's around these kids who are suffering that same existence, maybe even worse uh, because they're, they're doing it in the middle of this war and they're, you know, uh, I I think there's something there for, uh, there's something there about the, the cycle that's being created here and how it's just continually getting worse and worse. And I think that that's intentionally put in those lines about him leaving and coming back, I think are there on purpose to make us think about the impact of growing up in these types of environments and how it long-term it's not good for anybody.
1: Um, how incredible is the imagery in this movie considering it was made in 2001?
2: Oh my God. Like, can we like talk about the CGI in this movie and how fucking pristine it is compared to even stuff that comes out now again, because, because instead of trying to make an entire movie where everything is CGI, they just use it as necessary. Right. So if you, if you look at some of the behind the scenes stuff, you know, they, they put a kid in all this makeup to make him look like a ghost. And then they blur the image all around him with the CGI to give him that underwater feel. And they put in the, the, the blood dripping upwards and the bubbles and shit is, it has to be CGI. To be honest, I'm, I can't hundred percent sure that say that they didn't dunk a kid underwater and have some blood flow <laughs> from his head because it looks so fucking good. But I'm assuming CGI was used. Um, and it, I think the attention to detail combined with the, you know, putting, adding the CGI to a real scene rather than trying to create something out of CGI makes it work so much better. And, mm. and you know, the CGI is at its best when you don't notice it. And in this case, I, I don't think you notice it, you know? Like it's not, there, there isn't.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's not like overused.
2: Yeah. You know, and, and it isn't just a kid in a green outfit acting and then they just put a, ghost over top of that. You know what I mean? It's, you can tell that there's a corporeal form there that's had Mm -hmm. some stuff that had makeup and everything added to it. And I think that it always makes it feel more real.
1: Yeah. There's some real, like great filmmaking techniques used in this movie.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: Like you just said, using the kid and putting makeup on him and then going in afterwards and altering the image. But you know, the physical aspect of it is still there. Like it's just, it's gorgeous like I have the criterion uh, Blu-ray of this and on the front of it, I used it for our uh, upcoming um, for our coming soon thing. Um, And it's just a picture of Santi with his blood flowing out of his head. That was drawn by Mike McNola because it's such a, like a just a a fantastic image.
2: Yeah.
1: It just like how that looks like standing in a physical space. It just looks amazing. Like I said, again, for 2001, like it's amazing that it looks as good as it does.
2: Yeah, and I think it helps too that the whole, I don't know how they filmed this. I should, probably should have looked this up, but it, everything looks like they're filming it in this like old building. Everything feels very real. The costumes feel authentic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so all of that, the the fact that everything feels like it's very real and then here you've got this ghost in the middle of it, adds a sense of realism to that as well. That is really really cool. And you know, like there's, I don't know how to say it. Like it, if they were filming this in with a bigger budget and they were building sets instead of finding locations, I think it would look, wouldn't work as well. <laughs> you know what I mean but it, yeah. it it feels very much like they found this old orphanage and almost the kind of thing where like, we could we could make a movie here what movies do we have that we could we could <laughs> set here
1: yeah and this was uh del toro's um uh, uh rebound movie Yeah, Cause he went and made mimic and had the worst experience ever pretty much swore off ever making american movies again and uh went and made this and it's just like oh my god kind of wish he'd have his heart broken more. If, if this is the kind of work he's going to, I'm glad he's I'm gonna glad end up came with. back.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean he's, he's done great things in his, you know, weird, weird Spanish phase as well as in his big Hollywood phase. But mm-hmm. yeah, his, yeah. uh, this one here is, it's, there's just the attention to detail. I think too, it shows a real love for the, uh, the craft there's little things like when uh when the old man passes away when you see him like sitting in the chair like suffering and you kind of know he's gonna die and he's been he's been blown up and shit so you know he's dying and when the kids come back and he's been dead for a while because they've been off fighting with this evil janitor um there's not not only is he dead but they've. i'm assuming again cgi i don't know this for sure but there's flies around him and shit. That those like little details that are really noticeable when you watch the film, that really sh- really make everything feel feel more real. Even though it's there are fantasy elements to the film, making making something with ghosts in it feel real is very tough, and he's done a great job of that. Yeah. So do we want to talk about them stabbing that guy to death for a while, or oh my god,
1: <laughs> specifically the one in the armpit?
2: Yeah, the the first one you mean? Oh my god. Yeah, it just it hurt it, again. The attention to detail, it looks so good when they they're just stabbing him with these sharpened sticks that they've made while locked away. <laughs> and he's just like <laughs> it is it's dark because it's children stabbing a guy to death. But it's also like it's satisfying as an audience because now by this time we know that he murdered one child. We saw him intentionally cut another kid in the face we know that he's willing to hurt and kill a lot more, right? I mean, most of the characters in the movie are dead and it's all because of him, you know, adding to the fact that he was already like cheating on his girlfriend and planning to steal from the orphanage and the, and the war fund. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. They, they do a really good job, I think, of setting him up at the beginning. He seems like a likable character. And just the more you get to know him, the more you get to know him. He's just worse and worse and worse and worse <laughs> until you're finally like, yeah, okay, it's okay to stab him a bunch of times, children.
1: In the armpit, though.
2: Oh. That's a dark spot. It's dark when it goes in like that. But I think it it also it adds, us, again, this sense of realism. I keep saying that same thing over and over again. But the idea that kids just like jab them and don't really know what the hell they're doing and you're like yeah that's probably what would happen right and it's kind of this weird moment where like it starts with that first stab and then everybody kind of stops for a while And, and then as he goes down then they all kind of come in and get him more and stuff and it's like it's this real loss of innocence type moment where you're just like they they go from you know being nervous being scared that one kid takes the first shot and then none of them know what to do to just full on like Lord of the flies shit by the end of it. I was, I was
3: getting ready to say, I wonder if that's on purpose because Lord of the flies, is exactly what I was thinking at the end of the movie too.
2: I mean, that's, it's interesting that we both thought it and it's knowing Del Toro. It's not, it wouldn't be surprising if he's intentionally making us think about that.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, group of boys going crazy slash group of boys having to fight off uh, essentially a monster. I
2: mean, yeah, makes perfect sense.
1: Um, I don't know. Does anybody else have anything else?
2: No, I mean, I, I think this movie is amazing in the sense that I always say the the best movies are movies that work on multiple levels. Like the best horror movies are the ones that combine a creepy atmosphere with the, the great visuals and the gore effects and stuff. This is a great mm-hmm. example of that where it's like, just this kind of monotone uh, atmosphere that they create throughout the whole film. And then just the, it makes the images work that much better because they are in the background and everything. I love all that. I think it's great that like the drama of the film works. Like if you took the horror out of this movie and just made it a drama about uh, about kids growing up in an orphanage during a war, I'd still think it's a great movie, you know? It's a yeah. a slightly different movie, but I, th- I think you could you could make either of these stories, either the ghost story or the drama film. You could make them as standalone movies, and they would both work.
1: All right, uh, Noah, do you want to run down Pan's Labyrinth for us?
2: Yeah. So this is
3: set during the Spanish Civil War. Um,
2: it's actually set after the war is over. It's, I think it's because it's 1944.
3: Yeah, I suppose. They're still rebels.
2: Yeah. Uh, And it's about a little girl and
3: her mother going to live, not exactly on a base, but on an encampment with her new stepfather, who is a fascist piece of shit. Uh, And she is obsessed with fairy tales, and she gets involved with a fawn who tells her that she is actually some kind of moon princess and that she has to complete tasks and at the same time she's dealing with uh the fucking nightmare that is her reality. Uh and it turns out she's kind of shitty at both those things. <laughs> uh yeah. That's it. And then, and, and then it kind of it ends kind of badly for everybody. Although, I it, like, there's kind of a weird thing where we transpose from pagan imagery to like maybe Judeo Christian imagery, which is kind of strange at the end of the movie. There's some weird undertones that probably are parallels to a girl getting her period and becoming a woman slash mother in a bunch of weird ways that it feels pseudo inappropriate in this movie. For some reason, (laughs) you want to be like maybe, maybe not, maybe not Guillermo. Maybe we don't need that subline as well. (laughs) But besides that, it's a really, it's a really good movie. It's just it's it's a weird mix of fantasy imagery interspersed with like gut wrenching violence.
2: Yes, it's it's again one where they're telling two different stories side by side. And the stories don't interconnect until the very end of the film. But both stories are so intriguing that you're fine watching both, I find, anyway. Throughout the whole film, I'm like genuinely intrigued by both storylines. And then, you know, obviously the visuals are mainly happening on the, the fantasy side, um, where she's, you know, dealing with gross frogs and weird monsters with eyeballs in their hands and stuff like that. Um, Doug Jones, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: Multiple Doug Jones in this movie. Yeah,
2: Doug Jones all over the place. What, I haven't checked the cast listing in a while. Is he the fawn and the monster? And the pale man, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I like how he's completely covered in makeup, so you could never see him. But I'm like, oh, I know I know what his role is in del Toro films. <laughs> I could guess based on the costume who they would put in it. Oh.
3: But so, so you guys aren't in the weird camp, right? the weird camp of people that insist that uh, the fantasy stuff in the movie is not real. And it is all in the girl's head. It's just her way of coping with all the shit that's going on.
1: Uh, in my opinion, Wait, that, that's, that's the weird camp. Yeah. Yes. To, to be in that camp. Yes. that. Uh, d- so you, you're <laughs> taking the fantasy stuff. Literally. Yes.
3: Okay. It, it affects, it affects reality. That's, that's my, the, the, yeah. the thing I will argue to the end of the earth is, the fantasy stuff affects reality.
2: Yeah, the, the the subplot about her putting the mandrake root under the bed to help her mother get better and then that's I believe that's there mainly to um to let the audience know that the reality the fantasy stuff is real and can it any interpretation that it's not real is right. Ignoring the, that.
3: Yeah, and then the in the book bleeding and then her mother having the 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 bleeding from her uterus and all that kind of stuff yeah. immediately afterwards. Like, there's a lot of stuff that firmly establishes that the fantasy stuff has to have some basis in reality.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I take it as literal. Um, and I think that's how it's intended. Uh, that, you know, the, this little girl is literally the re- the incarnation of this princess. And she's being assigned tasks to allow her to escape into the back into her fantasy world where she can be the princess forever. She's just shitty at it. Yeah. There's also just happens to be a war going on and she's dealing with this new stepdad. Who's an an evil son of a bitch the whole time. You know, all that, all that is also going on. It's all, both sides of the story are real in my mind. Where are you at, Brian? Are you with us? Um, I think it's, yeah, I'm with you guys. It's, yeah, I've I'd n- I'd never
1: really questioned it. I guess that's why it wasn't. How do you guys feel about her weird shittiness?
3: Like <laughs> she, <laughs> that, that <laughs> little <laughs> that little fucking girl is terrible at following instructions.
2: Why? Because she eats some grapes.
3: Well, not just that. So he t- the mandrake root thing. The first thing he tells her is two drops of blood, and she puts about five drops of blood in it the very first time she does it she fucks up she eats the fruit she fucks up the timer she she like she is fucking she gets those poor fairies eaten but yeah she's just shitty she I, she is a shitty moon princess
2: can i casually point out that she's a 10 year old girl suffering through a war and yeah, you're I like i can't i can't believe she ate a grape <laughs> when my, my kid eats grapes when i tell him not to <laughs> like that's just life.
3: If you're is your child a moon princess?
2: Not to my knowledge, but well, kid,
3: then he can have all the grapes he
1: wants. Yeah. Well when the mom tells her not to get her dress dirty, and the first thing she does is run and jump underneath the tree.
2: That's not the first Find thing s- she does.
1: S- stones from a fucking giant frog right, well, or whatever.
2: Allow me to point out that you guys are now just Picking on this child because you're mad at her. You're <laughs> mad at her for not listening to her mom. You're mad at her for not listening to the fawn, but the fawn and the mom are giving her contradictory instructions. What she's supposed to do? It's a lose lose. Poor kid. I don't think she's shitty. I, th- I don't think she's shitty. I think she's ten. I think that's what this comes down to. 10 year old. I, I think she should have got her up.
3: face caved in with a wine bottle. How
1: fucked up is that? God damn it that just sort of comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden it's just like oh he hit him with the bottle oh my god he's gonna keep going oh 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 no oh no
3: yeah the first time i watched this was for murph and the fat kid and me and fat kid watched it together and that was pretty much our reaction we were like what in the fuck just happened
2: (laughs) what about the darkness of that evil fucking monster he murders the guy with the wine bottle he shoots the other guy and then he's like yeah by the way there was no need for me to do this I knew the whole time that they were innocent I just did this like as a way to teach my troops a lesson (laughs) it's like Jesus Christ like when he goes into that bag and pulls out the rabbits thus proving that they were completely innocent of doing anything wrong and you're like but you looked in the bag that's where you got the wine bottle from fuck like that's not cool man No,
1: just a big old piece of shit
2: Oh god, he's he's one of the worst characters that we've seen in movies in so long. He's just like he, the way he talks about his wife like she's just a a vessel for his future child hmm. and like like the
1: annoyance of having the little girl around the whole
2: time. Yeah. It's like the I mean, I guess the evil step-parent trope is like standard in fantasy stuff, so it's not not unreasonable that they would have one here, but it's pretty bad. At the end, he fucking shoots the girl. We left that out of our plot description, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. He does shoot the 10-year-old girl who's the heroine of our story.
3: Doesn't it feel like like it's extreme even for dark fantasy? Like, if the Brothers Grimm were, like, Cinderella's stepmom, also a fucking fascist, you'd be like,
2: chill the fuck
3: out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I definitely think, like, yeah, it's... I mean, at the risk of getting political, I think there's a clear anti-fascist theme running through this. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the idea that we're supposed to think of him as this over-the-top evil character is a way of reminding us that that's what fascists are inherently.
1: So which do you think is worse, getting stabbed in the armpit with a, with a sharpened stick or getting a knife through your lip, up into your cheek, stitching it shut and then putting a bandage on it and then drinking like whiskey
2: i mean it's better than not drinking whiskey i'll tell you that
1: jesus christ
2: yeah i don't know
1: hurt bad enough and then he takes the drink and i'm just like oh what are you doing
2: or how about
3: whatever the fuck he did to that dude that they torture
2: oh my god when that okay so when he's pulling out his tools to torture that guy and i hope people have seen the movie because like you have to be able to imagine when he pulls out that little hammer thing and he's talking about how it's going to make him talk. And then he pulls out Mm -hmm. those little clasp things that I, I've seen them use for pulling out fingernails or pulling out teeth. We're not really sure what he's planning to do with it. But when he pulls out that third thing, that little thin sticky thing for sticking up something, I'm thinking there's only so many spots in your body. You can stick that. (laughs) And I don't want anybody sticking anything in any of those spots, man. Like ah, Jesus. Yeah. Like, i'm like Not that good. is and he just just hold it up to the camera just long enough for you to visualize it and go oh my god and then <laughs> cut away and cut back to that guy just fucking and then that dark moment where Dude,
3: the... with his mangled ass fucking hand
2: yeah just oh fuck and that doctor comes in and the doctor's like yeah i'm just gonna go ahead and euthanize you because that's what i can do like because i'm on your side <laughs> that's what i can yeah. do to help you is euthanize you yeah
1: fuck hey kids kids right
2: this is like a this is a weird kids movie because there's like not very very many on-screen amputations in most kids movies Um, usually you know no 10 year old kids get shot in kids movies stuff like that you know other than that, it, like there's a, a version of this movie that's like a PG fairy tale movie about a little girl having to like go get a key off a frog's belly by giving him magic stones or whatever, and you're like, that's cute. Well, if you, you could tell the, the story that way and have it be a kids movie, but I yeah, I think you might have to remove some of the extreme violence, the darkness of that moment when the mom's like having her bleeding incident. And you get that wide shot of her and it's like that really dark room and she's in that bright white dress with just blood all over the front of it. And it's like Jesus that's that's a scary moment. Like no. oh, just No.
3: Yeah, this is a good movie, but this is a fucking depressing movie. <laughs> at least this
2: one has a happy ending. At least the little girl gets to go be the princess. Sort of, I guess. The little girl gets to go be the princess at the end. At least the fairy tale aspect of it works out. Like the, Of the two stories, when the two stories combine, like the little girl gets to be a princess, and the fascist dickhead gets taken out by the rebels. So technically happy endings all around. As long as you're not that guy that got tortured or the doctor that got shot or, you know, the, the
1: girl that got shot. That's still painful.
2: Yeah. But
1: and then she dies at the mouth of whatever, to then be reborn as the uh, moon princess.
2: Yeah. But I mean, like the heroine of the story, sacrificing herself in an attempt to save her little brother and then being rewarded in the afterlife is technically a happy ending. Yes, we got to watch a ten-year-old girl get shot on screen. We all did that, but or I guess maybe I shouldn't say "got to watch." Maybe I should say "had to watch." That <laughs> would have been the first time. Would have <laughs> been self-revealing there.
1: Uh, fucking Doug Jones. We've mentioned before. Yeah, I feel like his portrayal of the the uh, fawn is just fantastic
2: I, I love the the fawn in this movie because I love at the beginning when you first see him and you're like I think that might be evil just because he kind of looks like some sort of weird indigo creature and then it turns out he's just there as like a guide and he eventually like when he shows up in her bedroom and like teaches her how to help her mom get healthy and stuff and you're like okay he's he's a really nice guy for being as creepy looking as he is <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, apparently Doug Jones, he doesn't speak Spanish, so he had to learn all of his lines phonetically,
2: and they
1: had someone dub it for
2: him. Okay, I was going to say, like, that's not his voice, right? No, no, no. Okay. I, su- I assumed that it was a Spanish actor speaking the lines.
1: Yeah, he just had to pronounce everything
2: correctly and then just to give just other people, dubbed him over. Just to give everyone else, or I guess specifically the girl, something to react to.
1: Well, I'll just have the mouth movements match the dialogue right. since it's Spanish yeah. and stuff.
2: I have to keep yeah. reminding myself because of the nature of the visuals in this film. It's like, oh yeah, right. Like The mouth movement has to happen because it's not CGI. You can't just edit it later. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. In today's day and age, that would be done in CGI and it wouldn't look as good. But it's all just makeup. Yeah. I think there is some use of CGI. I've seen some behind-the-scenes shots where I think maybe the legs were partially CGI'd. Yeah, stuff yeah. like yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah, he had the green socks on at some point,
2: and they uh,
1: took it out because I think they did the thing where um, the leg, like the knees sort of bend backwards, I guess.
2: Yeah,
1: and so his his legs were straight, and then they just erase the little green socks, and so all you see is the uh, the bent legs, which works.
2: Yeah, it's um, but I mean visually, it's it's stunning. That whole like underground world is really cool looking, and then like having the fawn. And I think bringing the fawn into the real world was a real nice touch by having him like in the walking around the house was kind of fun. Yeah. I enjoyed that. And
1: the fucking pale man shows up and makes everybody shit their pants.
2: And that, Again, that whole scene is just beautiful. That, that feast laid out and the bright lights and everything is just, it's all very gorgeous. And then to have this monster just sitting there, That moment where that thing is coming in behind her and she's arguing with the fairy (laughs) and he's just coming at her and you're like I don't know, I I don't know how people come up with these cool designs of like, let's have him put his eyeballs in his hands and then hold his hands up in front of his face. It looks so cool. Yeah.
1: It's amazing. I mean, that's Del Toro's you know gig. Just look at all the crazy characters, especially in the second Hellboy movie.
2: Yeah. But yeah, it's um Man, it's, it's something else. And apparently, like, there was going to be a sequel, and one of the reasons that there wasn't is because Del Toro was going to do Hellboy 2. And so it's kind of interesting that, you know, maybe some of the designs bled over because there were obvious similarities, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, how do we feel about this movie compared to the last one? Like, Del Toro kind of calls them, like, brother-sister films, um, which, I mean, is kind of obvious.
2: I think, yeah, the... the... The whole idea of a child based uh, like a, a child based narrative being told from the child's perspective in the midst of this war with the fantasy elements of it obviously this is more fairy tale the other one is a little bit more horror movie fantasy, but mm-hmm. it's there's an obvious connection there, which I think is you know it can't be unintentional and I think also the sort of it's it's interesting because in the last movie. We talked about the kids like losing their innocence at the end, and then wandering off down this road to uh, probably die in a war. We assume we don't know that, but we just assume. We're, what else is going to happen to them? They're wandering down the road with no food or water, you know. Um, but in this one, she still does that moment of like losing her innocence, and it ends up costing her life. But she is rewarded with this sort of afterlife, which is an interesting change between the two films. It's a sort of a different message, right? It's more of a, Mm -hmm. more of a spiritually enlightened message in this film and less practical.
1: I don't know. I just love these movies and what showing them like together to somebody, like, I just think they're both beautiful and gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I've had somebody tell me before that they tried to watch pain's labyrinth and they just couldn't get into it. So then they kind of put it away and then they kept hearing me talk about it all the time. So they got it out again and they finally got, got it all through and they're like, Oh man, last time there must've been kids running through the house or something. I couldn't concentrate because this time when I just sat down and watched it, like I just fell in love with this movie right away. It's not hard to be like pulled into it.
2: I think the movie really benefits too from being a foreign language film because you do have to, read the subtitles, which means you do have to sit and pay attention and not play games on your phone or, Mm -hmm. you know, go online and pay your bills or whatever while you're doing it. Like you have to be staring at the TV. And I think the film really benefits from that because again, two different stories happening simultaneously, both very engaging. So as we're bouncing back and forth between these two stories and we're watching this girl be assigned her tasks and, you know, go through the steps and we're also having like the, uh whatever she is, the the woman that runs the house where they're staying is like sneaking off at night to go and help the rebels and bringing the doctor with her to help like care for the ones that were injured mm-hmm. in battle and stuff. And you're like, that's, those are both interesting stories that I'm liking watching in parallel, but it is hard to follow both if you're not really paying attention. And yeah. uh, I wonder, like if this movie were a more typical Hollywood movie, I think it would be you know obviously with it being in english or whatever it would be much harder to follow but they do part of it is i think forcing us to watch and part of it is just good filmmaking that keeping you engaged in both storylines and transitioning back and forth in interesting ways
1: yeah no i was not happy about this too many subtitles
2: <laughs> it was it was a lot i watched both of these movies back to back and it's yeah, a lot it's of exhausting subtitles, but well and especially
3: for a director that's so fucking visual it's obnoxious trying to read subtitles and then you're missing the visuals.
2: Well, I, don't. I, I, yeah, I don't have that problem. No,
3: I don't know. I personally, I think out of the two movies, I think Pan's Labyrinth is the better
2: movie, but I mean, if you, if you have to pick one, I think it's not unreasonable to say that Pan's Labyrinth is the better movie because it, Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a faster paced film for starters. Um, I think it goes heavier on the visuals. Um, and it's well, less, and just less the, depressing.
3: The theming and storytelling is a lot tighter too. Well, but that's part of, that's just because he was you know, he made more films and he was becoming a better director.
2: Mm. Yeah, again, I, I think I it I don't know if I like that wording because I, I agree it's more linear storytelling, right? The you know, in the fantasy storyline she's given three she's got three tasks in the real world you're following the this guy who's trying to hunt down these rebels and you're all that interacting. It's 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 much more traditional storytelling. I don't know that it's better storytelling. It's more traditional and therefore easier to follow.
3: Oh, see, I don't I don't even think it's the traditionality of it. I think it's the the, the like themes in the messaging are a lot more clear, and the parallels of those themes are a lot more clear than Devil's Backbone. Double, Devil's backbone's kind of all over the place a little bit, not not terribly so, but it doesn't. It's like I said, it's not as clean. Like there's very specific themes in this movie of uh, when you should object to the orders of authority. Yeah, like that's that's kind of the entire message of the movie. That's why we have the rebels. That's why we have all those people die. That's why at the end of the movie she chooses to die instead of harm another person. Like i don't know that's just better storytelling if that makes sense
2: no, like I see what you're saying, like especially with the um the idea of when to question authority because you have her you know stealing grapes and costing some fairies their lives and almost getting herself killed, and you've also got the uh the housekeeper lady who you know she she has a moment where she breaks down at one point calling herself a coward because she's living with these fascists and you know, meanwhile, these other guys are out there like actively fighting them, and she's you know not, not she could just slit his throat at any given time you know and there is this kind of tension of like when do you stand up when do you when's enough enough And the little girl ends up learning that lesson very specifically when it comes to well, enough's enough when it comes to he could hurt my little brother you know right So yeah
3: it, yeah and the for, like I said, and the foreshadowing and stuff is so tight. So because there's the uh the girl takes the grapes and awakens the monster, right? Right. And and then there's the parallel of that to the uh Mercedes who takes the supplies from the the Nazis and awakens the monster, you know. Yep. It's
2: yeah, it's a, it's a direct parallel. And it's it's yeah. very obvious and it's it's really it's really well done with storytelling wise because it's not like like the little girl doesn't look into the camera and go, this is just like that time I took the grapes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you exactly. have to be watching the film and paying attention to it. But there's even, I think, <laughs> the moment where when uh, fascist dickhead there takes the Mandrake and throws it into the fire and you're like, that Mandrake looks an awful lot like a baby and this whole movie there's a baby coming and i bet you he's gonna try to take that baby like you know what i mean like it's it <laughs> like it's done in a way where you're like it could just be a cool visual or it could be foreshadowing what's coming next in the film and-
3: yeah there's there's some kind of weird theme in this movie too that is about cannibalism and i don't quite. That's. I think that's one of the bits of messaging in the movie that I'm like, I don't quite understand. Like cannibalism? Maybe it's supposed to be a representation of like the destructive nature of mankind or something that we destroy ourselves. Oh, yeah, because it, it comes up a bunch. It, she has to feed the mandrake root blood and it's a baby, right? Yeah. And the fawn is eating skin and you've got the pale man that eats babies and eats people and
2: yeah and and like i'm not sure if there's like a message there or if it's just well that's pretty gross let's put that in the movie um
3: and i i find it hard to believe that it comes up as many times as it does and it's not intentional
2: i'm sure i'm sure there's something there um like i say the the way that that bandrake thing is so (laughs) personified it's very strange Listening to it cry when he throws it in the fire is just horrific. And there's obviously a message there too about embracing your spiritual roots and believing in that sort of stuff. Because otherwise, why would you know why have the whole storyline of hey when she listens and does what the fawn tells her, she's able to help her mother, but when the people go against it, they're um, they end up hurting the mom. That kind of stuff. Lots and lots of interesting things going on in this film that are like. Subtle enough that you could just sit back and go, yeah, look at the cool monster. But when you take the time to stop and think about it, all this stuff kind of trickles to the surface, which I love.
1: I just like that Del Toro can make movies like this. And then also one where giant robots punch giant monsters in the face.
2: That's the thing is like a talented filmmaker can take anything and make it interesting. And I mean, a lot, like most of what Del Toro has made in his career. If you go back and watch it, like especially the really good stuff, you're like, nobody else could do that. Nobody else could have made these two films that we're talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. Again, another director would, wouldn't have been able to pull off the subtlety mixed with this much fantasy. It's very difficult to kind of walk that fine line. I don't know how he does it to be quite frank. Like I can't explain why del Toro films are as engaging as they are, but they are. And they like, he can take that and he can apply it. Like I say, it could be in this. Like, I think the next movie he made was Hellboy 2. Like it's, <laughs> it's fascinating that he can make that leap from this like subtle foreign language film to this giant Hollywood blockbuster, but applying the same filmmaking techniques and the same sort of weird aesthetic in a certain way.
1: <laughs> and that sneeze means it's time to move on.
3: Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. More info: check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at mn Pod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to the Midnight Drive-In at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food and drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for
1: calling. All right, what did everybody watch?
3: not much. Uh, been very busy. So, uh I did I tell you guys I started watching the show Superstore?
1: <laughs> no.
2: The cheesy so, like Walmart based show. Yeah,
3: so it's goddamn funny.
2: You know what? I it was like a thing I watched during COVID. And so yeah, it is funny.
3: Yeah, it took it took me a little minute cuz at first I started watching it and I was like, "Oh, I get it. So this is just the office. It's just not as well done." But then like you get most of the way through the first season and all of a sudden you're like, Okay, no, I fucking love this. I get it.
1: Yeah. I actually worked at Kmart in high school and came up with the idea for doing a show like this.
2: And you should have, st- you should have it. pitched it to someone, apparently they would have made it. Apparently.
3: Yeah. It's it is really interesting that you watch it and if you've ever worked in retail, you do there are like four or five characters you're like, Yeah, that person's a
2: real person. <laughs> I don't even think you need to have worked in retail, just walked through a store before.
3: I don't know. It's a, Like I said, it's real fun. I think I'm on season three or something like that of it.
1: It wasn't there in like five or something?
3: Uh, I think they're on season six. Well, I think it's over. Or, or it goes up to season six. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. It's It's hard to explain what makes it a good show, but it's really funny. Just because you... <laughs> Uh, although a couple of the characters, like, there's one character in the show that's just this super nice kind of quiet chick that they treat like garbage constantly, and you just you feel so bad for her. <laughs> You're like, I think I'm supposed to laugh at this cruelty, and I just feel
2: bad. No, that's just because that's the character you relate to. Yeah, I suppose so.
1: Uh I had six seasons. The last one was in 2020. Uh, Look like they're incorporating COVID into storytelling.
2: Yeah, I, think I seem to recall that.
1: Huh.
3: Well, that'll be fun to get to. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's it. I haven't had a chance to go to the theater or anything. What about you, Doug? Uh,
2: I only watched a couple things. Uh, first up, uh, I remember when we were talking about House in Haunted Hill, and Brian kept saying how the remake was something that people should give a chance to. Yeah. So I did actually, I actually watched something that you said I should watch, Brian.
1: Wow.
2: (laughs) Impressed and surprised. Um, and you know what? It's like, it, it doesn't deserve to be bulked in with the, uh, the haunting of Hill house remake that came out around the same time, which is what we kind of discussed was that maybe the two of them got grouped together. And that's why this one was overlooked. Mm -hmm. Um, I won't say it's a great movie. Um, but it does have a decent atmosphere to it. It's interesting. Jeffrey Rush plays like Stephen Price, who's the guy that invites everyone to the house, and he's just doing a uh, a Vincent Price impression the whole movie. Like he's got the pencil mustache, he's got the like I don't know, the jacket with like an ascot that makes him look like he's dressed as Vincent Price, and he's he's doing the effeminate evil Vincent Price. And you'll appreciate this, Noah, his wife just keeps calling him gay. The whole, movie. So, <laughs> so you'll, uh, you, your interpretation of Vincent price is apparently consistent with her interpretation of Vincent price. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting change. So they set it in an asylum instead of in a home, which gives us the, uh, a lot more room for fun visuals and weird ghost stuff. Right. Um, they also do an interesting thing where they tell you early on that some of the stuff is rigged by this like guy. Cause he actually, he runs like amusement parks. That's his whole thing. So they kind of imply that like, yeah, he is setting stuff up, but then they start to imply that maybe some of the stuff happening isn't him. <laughs> so we don't, we don't know. Um, and so you get this, you still manage to get in a little bit of a, a little bit of mystery. Although I think it, it isn't uh, particularly intriguing. I wouldn't say it's most mostly turns into more of an actiony thing with them all running around the house as stuff happens to them. Most of the cast is really good. Like Jeffrey Coombs plays this evil doctor in, in the flashbacks, and like K Jansen is the wife. Chris Katan is the like guy that owns the property that's showing them around that keeps freaking out, um, which is like it's it's a little too comic reliefy for me personally, but. He is the comic relief character. The only one I would say is uh, Tay Diggs, I think, is in it. I think it's him. Mm-hmm. And he's just, he's not equipped for this type of movie. So when he's supposed to be like all scared and shit, he keeps acting way too cool. Like that's, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's acting like the cool guy from an action movie. And I'm like, but I thought, I thought you're supposed to be scared of all this stuff. I don't understand. But overall, yeah, it was, it was okay. It was, I didn't hate rewatching it, you know.
1: Now, are you going to follow that up with Return to House on Haunted Hill?
2: I I somehow doubt it. Do you guys think I should? Because if you say yes, then that might pressure me into doing it. You tricked me into watching this. <laughs> um, what if one of
1: us says no and one of us says yes? That's so we covered not, either way.
2: I'm not watching Return to House on Haunted Hill. So. No. But I'm assuming it's like, what, a direct-to-DVD sequel?
1: Uh, I think so.
2: Yeah. Uh, I don't I, know if it
1: would be theaters or not.
2: Uh, well, it, it will remain a mystery unless you want to watch it and tell us about it. So Maybe mm-hmm. you can do a double feature, but I'm putting it on you. I'm not going to do it. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, that's weirdly, I think that's all like horror movies I watched this week. I did. Okay. I watched, uh, I watched a documentary about Mr. Dress Up. Do you guys know who Mr. Dress Up is? No. <laughs> nope. No. All right. You guys might actually find the story kind of interesting. So like, I guess question one, are you guys aware that Mr. Rogers actually got his start on Canadian television? No, no. Okay. So like late fifties when the CBC was trying to develop a children's television, like, uh, I don't know, like a series of programming. Right. So they actually hired like this production company to come up and that's and eventually developed the first mr rogers show called it was called mr rogers and it was mr rogers like first show and he it had a lot of the elements of the more well-known show on it like it had like the little train that went to the back and the puppets and shit right Mm -hmm. and this guy ernie coombs was like one of the puppeteers and did like voices and he was like an artist and stuff on it so when the contract ran out after two years and Mr. Rogers decided to go back to the States and produce a show there. They're like, well, what do you, what, what should we do? And he kind of suggested, well, this guy's like really talented. You should like maybe give him his own show. And so they developed after a couple of like iterations. It started out as more of like a variety show, but by like 1966, Mr. Dress Up was its own show starring this guy that had come up here with Mr. Rogers. And like that ran from 1966 until 1996 up here like daily oh, wow. so like somebody described it in the documentary as like the lennon and mccarthy of children's television it's like it's fascinating that these two guys happen to meet and create these two like iconic children's characters that ran for so long right uh, so it's it's kind of an interesting story from that perspective and you know then there's a bunch of just like if you're a Canadian kid, you probably like watching this documentary because it's a lot of Canadian celebrities talking about how great Mr. Dress Up is. And, you know, how, like Michael J. Fox talking about how he grew up watching it and stuff like that, you know, is always fun. <laughs> and the ending of it gets, a, it gets even more fun because you get into this uh, story of like post his retirement where he would do these speaking tours, but he would go to colleges because kids that were in college at that point had grown up watching mr dress up so he'd go to colleges and speak at bars and all the kids would be like excited to see him and they'd be drinking and shit while they were listening to him speak which is super fun but i thought you guys might like that that interesting story about how it got started um i don't necessarily recommend anybody who's not canadian watch the documentary because i'm not sure exactly how (laughs) not sure exactly how interesting it would be to somebody who didn't grow up on this but
1: yeah, I did the American version because I watched the Mister Rogers documentary.
2: Yeah, I watched and that too.
1: Fucking Bald my eyes out when I watched it. Yeah, um, did find it interesting that Mister Rogers retired and then had to come out of retirement because Superman the movie came out and kids were putting towels on their round their neck and jumping down the stairs or off roofs or shit, and he's like, "Oh, I gotta come educate these children."
2: It's so fucking frustrating that people are so dumb that like Mr. Rogers can't retire. <laughs> Although the worst part of the Mr. Rogers documentary is definitely um when it, they let fucking Tucker Carlson be in it and badmouth Mr. Rogers. Like, Dog. So at least we don't have anything quite like that. Like the the equivalent in the Mr. Dress Up version is uh that he uh, when this conservatives took over and like the 80s, there was a lot of budget cuts, so he had to like scale back his show and run more ads. And then, like the one puppeteer actually ended up leaving the show, and there was a, a brief battle over whether she got to take her puppets with her or not. Crazy. There is one interesting thing. So there's a, a puppet in Mister Dress Up. Like there was like you no know, the typical set, and he goes in the backyard, and there's a treehouse there, mm-hmm. and there's a Casey and Finnegan live in the treehouse, and every episode he goes out and talks to them, right? And Casey's the kid and Finnegan is like the kid's dog. Um, But like no one ever knew whether Casey was a boy or a girl. And when people started asking that question, they made a decision to not answer it and just let it like the the way they describe it is like, they were just kind of like, well, let every kid kind of see themselves through those eyes. You know, if you identify it as a girl, boys aren't going to aren't going to be able to relate to it. You identify it as a boy and the puppet, you can't tell by looking at it. But I think that they were heavily influential on Seed of Chucky. When you, if you look up what Casey looks like and you look up what that thing in Seed of Chucky looked like, I think that <laughs> I, I don't know if it's intentional, but it's certainly given that they are the two most famous non-gendered fucking puppets in the world. They look an awful lot alike, in my opinion. Mm. So, what was it, what was the one thing in Seed of Chucky called? Glenn. Uh, Glenn. Glenn. Yeah.
1: Because it's. That's... Glenn and Glenda.
2: Right. That's a reference to that. Okay. Yep. I didn't like see the Chucky very much, so I haven't rewatched it in a long time.
1: No, but Glenn and Glenda show back up on the Chucky show. Oh, really? And It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah.
2: See, I've, I've still only seen season one of that. I've got to get around to seeing more of it.
1: Yeah. Season two, they show up.
2: Hmm. All right. Um, so yeah, that weird documentary about Canadian children's television is the, <laughs> is the only other thing that I hmm. watched, unfortunately.
1: Well, I watched, I finished up uh, The Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon. Oh, yeah? Ended this week. Uh, It's a pretty good run. It's only six episodes, so it's a nice short little story. Kind of interesting. Has some uh, lone wolf and cub influences, which is interesting. Not something I would uh, expect in a show like this, but it's there. Um, It's good. Sets up season two perfectly. So uh, if anybody's interested, definitely check it out. Friend of mine Paris. saw it, and he's like, "Does he fucking end up in Paris?" I'm like, "Yeah, he does." They explain how, and it, for the most part, makes sense. So, yeah, um,
2: that, that's uh, yeah. I guess without spoiling it, like, am I going to be mad at how he ended up in Paris if I try to watch this?
1: No, I don't think so. I think if you watch it and you're like, because there is an episode where they sort of they show the flashback and kind of show how it all happened. Okay, and you're like, oh, no, oh, okay. I mean, for the most part, that makes sense for the specific world they live in. So, yeah. Right. yeah cause There's an like, inciting incident that makes him end up in Paris. So,
3: right. Or yeah. France,
1: I guess I should say.
3: Zombie airplanes.
1: <laughs> it's true really they're making a zombie plane movie with Chuck Norris and Vanilla Ice playing themselves.
2: What? No. What did you just yeah. say?
1: Yeah. Making some zombie plane movie with Chuck Norris and Vanilla Ice playing themselves in it.
2: I I don't know how they can't decide
3: if that sounds great or fucking terrible.
1: Well, we'll do it on the show at some point. So
2: we'll find out. (sighs) You guys want to know something great that just happened here? What? My local cinema just posted something to Instagram. And it's like a sign of their, their two theaters with like the... They have a little sign over each door showing what movie's playing in each one. And mm-hmm. so, right beside each other, the that Taylor Swift concert movie is playing. Yeah. And beside it is 1977's House <laughs> Soup. <laughs> Imagine and, if you
1: walked into the wrong theater.
2: I am, I am praying that some like little 12-year-old girls walk into the wrong theater and have to try to explain what they just watched.
1: <laughs> Why did that disembodied head bite that girl on the butt? <laughs>
2: tay is having a weird phase. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my God. That movie's fucking weird.
2: I might go see it now. <laughs> now that I know it's playing.
1: Uh, the other, the only other thing I watched is I caught up with uh, the Equalizer 3. Oh yeah. Uh, I enjoyed that series. So I was excited for the third one to come out. I was worried when... Uh, Queen Latifah has the Equalizer series on CBS that, that would be the end of the movie series, but they still did a third one.
2: So. I still can't believe Queen Latifah got the Equalizer I haven't watched it, so I shouldn't judge it, but I'm pretty sure it's terrible.
1: Yeah, I've, I haven't watched it. Like, uh, but it's more old man John Wick type stuff. Yeah. It's good.
2: Denzel's Denzel, in that role.
1: Yeah, he ends up in uh, Italy in this one. So...
2: It does feel a little bit like they're just like, ah, how about Italy? Like just some, <laughs> some producer's office with a map on the wall. And he's just like, oh, where are we going to put the equalizer next? And he just throws a dart.
1: Sure. Why not? Um, Yeah. He ends up in this small town and coast of Italy. And of course mobsters are like, we should run drugs through here. And old Robert McCall's like, no, no, sir. And shit happens.
2: And so. he equalizes them, does
1: he? Sure does.
2: I mean, I, I feel like the plot is pretty predictable. It's just a matter of execution. And yeah. From the tone of your voice, it sounds like the execution is pretty good. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not bad. It's about on par with the other two. Yeah. Um, you know, this one has the reunion of uh, Denzel and uh, Dakota Fanning. Oh, really? From Man on Fire. Yeah, she plays, she plays like a CIA person that ends up, Sort of finding him for whatever reason. So it's kind of fun seeing them back together again now that she's, you know,
2: full blown grown ass person. It's weird that she's a grown up, eh?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a little weird watching them. Like, oh, wow, they're adult. Like, she's an adult now. Denzel looks about the same.
2: Yeah, he doesn't really age. It's kind of weird. Wow. So,
1: yeah. If you're a fan of the Equalizer, check out equalizer three from what i've heard it's the last one
2: so yeah I don't know. it's it's been an interesting run with that series because i don't think any of the films have been great but mm-hmm. they're good so I, well, eventually yeah. i'll see this one like when i'm bored one day here's a brief glimpse of some of the truly fine pictures we've scheduled in the near future all
1: right next week it is going to be the week of halloween so we decided what better way to celebrate than watching a Halloween movie together. So instead of a normal show, we're actually going to do a commentary for Halloween 4, one of Doug's favorites.
2: It's the first Halloween movie I ever saw. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it convinced me to go back and rewatch the whole franchise.
1: You're like, what's up with Jamie's uncle? What's that all about?
2: Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> like how did he get in that hospital anyway? <laughs>
1: and then you're like oh jamie lee curtis shot his eyes out and then he then he got burned up but oh, somehow weird. his eyes grew back
2: the weirdest part is you got to remember this was 1989 there was not really like googling and stuff right so you oh. watch halloween you, you see halloween 4 right and you're like that was great and then you go okay so i go and i see halloween and i'm like all right makes sense he's alive at the end and i watch halloween 2 and it's, you're sitting there going "What?" Well, it seems like that's how we got in the hospital. I don't understand how there's a whole movie in between these two. <laughs> Luckily, I had an older brother that could explain it to me. I was like, I don't, I'm not sure if I get it. How does he go? I was like, yeah, just just watch four again.
1: No. I explained to my cousin once, who, uh, or my nephew, I mean, who got really into the Elvis movie that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I was like, well, if you really want to see how the story really ended, you got to watch this other movie. So I showed him the trailer for Bubba Hotep.
3: <laughs>
1: he was just staring at it with his jaw on the floor. Like, why would somebody make that movie? And I'm like, because that movie's awesome. That's why.
2: Like, I don't, I don't, it, you got to stop being friends with people who ask those kinds of questions. You don't, you don't need that negativity in your life, man. It's
1: just. Yeah, I'm sure he probably didn't watch it. I'm like, come on, man. It's a great movie. But you have to find out. The, the the real part of Elvis's life at the end.
2: <sighs> it's so unfortunate that most people don't even know about his monster fighting days in the retirement. Right. Role. I'm still sad we never got a sequel to Boba Hotel, Man. Yeah. Apparently
1: Bruce was not happy with the the script or something.
2: Yeah, I know. it was like creatives, and at one point they were going to make it with a, a different one.
1: Ron Perlman.
2: Yeah, and I'm like, let's talk for a while. I'd be fine. Like, I don't
1: know. The biggest regret was Paul Giamatti was going to play Colonel, Colonel Tom Parker in it.
2: But see, it feels like he should. Right? Like, well, he should have back then at least. Paul Giamatti can play anything.
1: He can. Apparently he's a huge uh, like Phantasm fan. So he just wanted to work with Coscarelli, and he was like excited about uh, playing Colonel Parker. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. This is going to be great. Remake of Phantasm with uh,
3: Paul Giamatti as Reggie.
1: <laughs> Paul Giamatti is one of the dwarfs. <laughs> he just plays like every dwarf in the movie.
2: Stop getting me excited for this, right? <laughs>
1: Did you ever watch Phantasm Five, Doug?
2: No. Yeah,
1: it's probably it's probably a better
2: choice. I mean, truth be told, I'm not a huge Phantasm fan.
1: Oh. Well, Noah, what are we doing Phantasm Month? Ooh, Phantasm Month.
2: All Phantasm, all the time.
1: I mean, Phantasm February has a good ring to it, Doug.
2: Makes me feel better that you're going with the shortened month, but still.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it could be a problematic series. And I say problematic, not that he thinks like, oh, I'm offended. Or just like, what the fuck is happening?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think we'd be yelling that, that phrase a lot. If we were watching the Phantasm films.
1: I was at a horror convention once and they were showing, a, they were having a screening of all the boys love Mandy Lane. And this is when it was like still like not being released for some stupid reason. Yeah. And it still didn't come out for like another five years after this.
2: Cause there was that whole weird period where they would just make movies and put them aside for a while. Just be yeah. like, we're not just going to release this right now. Why not? I, I don't know.
1: Cause we're the Weinsteins. That's what we do. Um, and so they were, and I'm just like, Oh, I really want to see that. So me and the ex wife went in halfway through phantasm to make sure we got seats. Cause I didn't know if the whole screening was going to fill up or whatever. So we're sitting there halfway through phantasm and after about 15 minutes, she leaves over. She's like, I don't know what's going on. And I said, if you watched it from the beginning, you would have no clue either. So don't worry about it. <laughs>
2: If you knew what was going on, I, I would take you to a psychiatrist. <laughs> well, you see,
3: that man is tall. And those those guys from Star Wars, they're bad. And uh, this may or may not be a nightmare and or a hallucination and or alternate reality and or something about Mars.
1: <laughs> Listen.
2: I think I think what we're getting at here is it's fine. It's just 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 do your best. <laughs> just
3: stick with it. There's a death frisbee coming up in a couple
1: movies. <laughs> yeah, I explained to her. I'm like, the whole thing's supposed to feel like a fever dream where you don't really know what's going on. So it apparently worked on you. That's that's all that matters.
2: It's, well, from that perspective, it works on everyone. Yeah. Again, if you. If you watched Phantasm and it just made complete sense to you, find a therapist, just go in, sit down, tell them that, and wait for advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I haven't rewatched them in a while. I have them all, unsurprisingly.
2: Yeah. You own it. Just tell us when you don't own a movie, okay?
1: Okay. See, I own both of them that we did for this episode. I own both of them that we did for last episode. I The episode before. Yeah, I, I've owned all of them we've
2: done this month. Yeah, But you didn't make Pants Labyrinth available to us through movies anywhere. I noticed that.
1: Um, is it not on my uh
2: No. Is it not transfer over? No. Devil's backbone, dude. Did hey, what?
3: <laughs> Pants Labyrinth on the YouTube.
2: Didn't show up here.
3: Uh, that was oh, going to say because I, I watched it on the YouTube.
2: Yeah. Damn it
1: says it's on movies anywhere, so it should have shown up.
2: I wonder if that's a weird cross-border problem.
1: Mm. We really need to cut that off. We just need to be like, look, North America, everybody can watch whatever.
2: That's so funny. At least I'm, I still remember when I was a kid that there would be movies that would come out on one side of the border and not the other. Or occasionally we would get slightly different cuts of movies.
1: Yeah, that's weird. Just to ship ship a different version of a movie. Like... You know, a hundred miles up across an imaginary line for some reason.
2: I don't know. It it has to do with different censorship laws in different countries. So, meaning you're allowed to like, like you guys get guns, we get uncut versions of movies. Is what I mean
0: by that. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater.